Hello, this is the BDO Financial Wellness Podcast, and I'm your host, Tara Bellio, and I want to thank you for joining us today, because we are going to discuss love and money. Let's be honest, being in a committed relationship doesn't guarantee that you and your spouse or partner are always going to agree on how to manage your finances. Maybe you're a saver and your partner is a spender, or your spouse hates carrying debt while you aren't that worried about the balance on your credit card. I know I'm in that department. Learning how to communicate about money in a relationship isn't always easy, but it is possible. And when couples face serious issues like overwhelming debt or relationship breakdown, a healthy money relationship can be even more important. My guests in this episode are BDO Licensed Insolvency Trustees, Michael Comrie and Jennifer McCracken. We have a great discussion about couples and money, including how to keep the lines of communication open and how to work through financial challenges in a healthy way. And for couples struggling with debt, Michael and Jennifer answer common questions asked by couples who are considering a consumer proposal or bankruptcy. Uh, Welcome, Michael and Jennifer. It is very nice to have you both here today. So we're just going to jump right in. Um, For couples who might be struggling to communicate about money, what advice do you have for building a healthy money relationship, Jennifer? I always stress the fact that communication is really key in your relationship and finances can cause a wedge in a relationship. So it's very important to have those financial dates, be on the same page, Share about what your income is. What are the household expenses? What are our financial goals? What's the short term? What's the long term? Acknowledge that people have different financial behaviors in a relationship. Maybe somebody saves more. Maybe someone's a bit more of a spender. You want to get on the same page, have those common goals, and go back and visit it. It's not something you do once a year. It's something you have to look at regularly in your relationship and also assess inequities. You know, there's changes, there's job loss, there's, you know, increased expenses at times. We know with COVID, there's the unexpected. So um, being on that same page and working together, the, the, the main piece there is the communication piece. And so that's the first thing I start with with my clients. Now, what would you say is a long term or a, a good timing to have these meetings, Michael? Like how often should people be sitting down and talking? Uh, Well, I suppose it depends on the level of communication uh, the couple might already have established. Um, I often meet with people, um, and it's very common, where one member of the relationship is responsible for all the budgeting and all the financing and financial decisions, and ultimately they're not really having a a conversation at all uh, on any level. So for those people, I would suggest they get into the habit of having conversations at least uh, once a month but potentially uh, more than that. And and the reason I say once a month is because I do encourage my clients, uh, whether they're in a relationship or not, to keep track of their income and expenses on a monthly basis. And Mm -hmm. so having, as Jennifer had said, just open, clear, and honest communication about um, where the budget's at, how it's being planned, um, you know, who's responsible for um, managing the bills or is it a shared task? And unless you're having, you know, regular conversations about that, um, one partner is going to potentially feel um, anxious or overwhelmed. And just by having the conversation, it removes a lot of that pressure uh, and just sort of that overwhelming feeling. So it, at least on, on a monthly basis, but, you know, potentially, uh, you know, more than that, if it, if it's, you know, if it works and they're comfortable with it. 
Well, I, I can't, I wish I could remember who said this to me because I would give them credit, but uh, that a budget is not a set it and forget it. It's a living document. It's something that you have to keep revisiting because there's going to be things like Amazon purchases that pop up that you may not have necessarily budgeted for and need to make some adjustments. Um, so what money issues should couples get out in the open before they move in together or get married, Michael? Uh, so for me, there's the sort of the three main um, sort of pillars and you want to talk about if you're comfortable with it and I think you should be if you're thinking about moving in together or getting married uh, you should talk about your debt levels uh, you should talk about your income levels um, and you should ultimately talk about what your financial goals are so you know maybe one person has a, you know a very developed ambitious initiative to purchase a home within a few years and the only way to get there is to you know create a deposit and, or a down payment to do that. They, they have very specific strategy to get there. And if the other person's not on board or they have different financial goals, uh, that's going to force certain blow up somewhere down the line. So if you're moving in together or getting married, really the, the implication there is you're going to be sharing finances. And so you should be aware of income levels and who can cover what expenses, because sometimes it's, it's not um, equal output, but equal effort that matters most uh, in feeling that the relationship balanced and shared and the responsibilities are being managed by both parties so for me those are the those are the three main areas but again it really depends on kind of like you know talking about finances and debt it's it's a it's a thorny issue and so you got to be comfortable with it but if you are i would say those are at least the, the the major three pillars or elements that should be discussed at the outset so if you're comfortable enough sharing a bathroom, you should be comfortable enough to talk about your finances. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and some people keep that door wide open, so you should really be comfortable with it. <laughs> Jennifer, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's great what uh, Mike is talking about. And I, the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, some people are coming with financial baggage and maybe they have not been as open with their partner. And so it, it actually some people feel that they can't be open because maybe they'll lose the relationship if they're dating somebody that is really financially prudent and talks about saving and they've been secretly carrying levels of debt. Um, you know, I would encourage folks that, you know, keeping secrets and not being open and honest when you're taking that step with somebody is only going to create bigger problems. So you, you address that issue now and be open and honest and accept whatever embarrassment you may have about what has been caused and work towards a solution together. This could be one of the first major issues you have in your relationship and it, and it, is, it become a bit of a test in terms of, is this going to work longer term? So that's the other piece that I would encourage some, anybody that's making that step to really think through is that, you know, don't keep secrets, be open and honest about it. And uh, it can be a good test for you to see if this relationship is something that will last long term. Mm -hmm. And also to that whole shame thing should be, uh, you know, don't be judgmental when you're on the receiving end of it. What else? Would, is there anything else you wanted to add, Michael, to that? Oh, uh, just um, sort of to carry on with that same point, I, I would just add that if you are keeping a secret, um, it's not going to get better over time. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. eventually when that information gets revealed, uh, if it's many months or years down the line, it's only going to exacerbate the problem and make it that much more difficult to deal with. And at that point, you know, you, you might now have a, a kid or mm -hmm. there might be other complications. Um, and now, you know, your failure to disclose or to be honest about your situation is going to cause a whole world of hurt that had you just been upfront with um, about that information from the get go would have been avoided or, or likely would have been avoided.
Exactly. So Michael, when couples sit down with you during that first meeting to discuss their debt problems, what are some of the communication or money management challenges they're typically experiencing? Uh, so, well, again, if, if they've been honest about their debt levels and their and their income levels, then that's a great place to start. Um, often mm -hmm. I find that um, I'll be sitting in with a couple or these days doing a virtual uh, consultation uh, and one of them will admit to having a liability that the other person had no knowledge of. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and right there and then uh, you've got a stumbling block to moving forward. The, the other issues I look at is sort of trying to figure out, and this is very common, one partner will say, oh, I have no idea, I get paid, I, I put my money in the account and my partner handles the rest. And, you know, maybe that works for them, but in my experience, that's that's not the best way forward. It's it's better that those tasks be shared or split or or if not, at least there's kind of a conversation about, you know, here's where we're at. This is, uh, you know, we met our budget this month. We didn't. And I mean, it really comes down to one person might be a saver versus a spender or, you know, might be inclined to keep secrets. Um, and, and often I, I find that that's a major issue. So I do encourage them to be upfront and honest about that situation and sort of to define for themselves who's better at what tasks. And maybe that person might be, you know, more responsible or if they're both okay at saving, then perhaps they, they split those tasks. But I do find if there is a large imbalance balance uh, of, of the responsibilities of, of handling the finances, it, it really does wear down on the one individual. And it's very difficult to manage two streams of income and potentially two streams of debt and try to make sense of where the money's going. And you're handling that all alone while likely also still working or managing a family. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, often if you're not being honest uh, about your you know, personality types or the finances or who's better at what, you're going to have sort of common, frequent, ongoing arguments. Whereas if you address those uh, sort of at the at the outset, uh, you're likely to avoid those types of, of uh, frictions. Jennifer, do you have any uh, tips for budgeting as a couple? Because I mean, not every couple is making the same amount of money, but they have this, like the expenses are coming out of the house. So like, is it directly, you know, if it's $100, we each pay $50. Like, is there is there a, a, a formula or tips or some sort of advice that you can give to couples as they sit down and talk about these things? Well, I do think that the uh, the percentage of the expenses that one covers in a household should be commensurate to the income. So the, the way you can do that is you basically set out what are all the inflows? What's the money coming in on a monthly basis? You could have a child benefit amount. You could have other sources of income that are going to assist with meeting your financial needs. So you're going to want to know monthly, generally, the, what the inflows are. You're going to break down what are you know the needs versus wants. What are our fixed expenses? When do they get paid? Uh, there's a paycheck planner system where you could tie those to pay dates and, and, and say this spouse covers this one and pays it on this date. Um, and then on the discretionary side, which is I think where a lot of people <laughs> run into problems, um, you also would have a plan in place to say, okay, honey, I will be doing the grocery shopping. This is what I plan to spend monthly. And so you you basically build out the household budget, have regard to what is the income of this spouse, that spouse, what is the other income, and put a plan in place. What you'd want to avoid is it's you know you have the issue that Mike was hitting on where one one spouse or one partner could have the responsibility for the work and ensuring it's all getting done. But the other issue you can have is that there's a spouse that has the responsibility also for paying more of the expenses, and that can cause problems in a relationship, a feeling of resentment, 
a feeling like, well, this, you know, this spouse here has so much more money to spend. Why isn't he or she contributing more? That's why you build that plan in place so that there's equities Mm -hmm. and there's fairness uh, with it. And then it avoids situations where spouses are are racking up debt in their own name secretly because maybe they're not able to manage their expenses on their line, on their side of the budget. And so they go, well, I'll just get this payday loan or I'll just use this to cover this one time, but it won't happen next month. And before you know it, they've incurred a lot of debt secretly. So uh, certainly on the budgeting, again, it goes back to the piece with communication and, and to being fair to say, look, we're a family. What are our goals? What, what do we want to achieve with our financial life? And we're all, committed to that. So it really shouldn't be an issue for one spouse who has higher income to cover off more of the expenses. That's really the fair way to do it. Okay. Now, some people may wonder about their spouse's consumer proposal or bankruptcy and how it will affect them, or if their bankruptcy will affect their spouse or partner. Uh, Can you tell us what couples should know when one of them decides to declare bankruptcy, Michael? Uh, yeah, so ultimately that's going to break down along the lines of who's responsible for the debt. So um, if an individual uh, partner is filing a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy and all of their debts are in their name and there's no guarantees or uh, you know co-signing or co-liability uh, or joint liability, then uh, that individual's bankruptcy will in no way impact their spouse because the debts are all in their name. Mm-hmm. It gets a little bit more tricky when there's joint liabilities because the bankruptcy is only going to remove the liability for the individual who's actually filing the bankruptcy. And then the other individual becomes responsible not for 50% of the debt, which is a common misconception, but for 100% of that debt. Wow. Uh, and so that individual, exactly. And so that individual, uh, there should be discussion or that the, the individual who is uh, joint on that debt, who's not filing bankruptcy should be aware that it will now become their responsibility to manage that debt in its entirety to avoid, you know, potential blowback on their credit or legal recourse from the creditor upon default. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it gets a little bit more complicated when you're dealing with supplementary credit cards. Um, in my personal experience, I've seen different situations. Generally speaking, the, the primary card holder uh, is responsible for all of the debt incurred on both cards. And, and if it's not clear, supplementary credit card is where you get a credit card and the the lender will ask if you want to have a supplementary card issued to perhaps your spouse. So in that case, the the primary card holder, in my experience, is always responsible for all of the debts incurred on both cards. Where it gets a little tricky is what degree or what amount of liability is associated with the supplementary credit card user, i.e. the spouse. And really, that's going to break down along what the terms of the agreement are. But but I have seen it. I've literally read the the agreement terms where the supplementary card holder is responsible for all of the debt, or and this is more common in my experience, they're responsible potentially for the debt that they've incurred themselves while using that supplementary uh, card. So that's what you need to think about: what's joint, what's not. Now, Jennifer, will debt collectors try to collect unpaid debt from a spouse? Well, if the spouse is a co-signer or has a supplementary card, then yes, there's a risk that when somebody makes the proposal filing or the bankruptcy filing, they don't have the creditor protection. So Mm -hmm. the collector will pursue it. Um, I always tell individuals, 
because sometimes they don't know, like we're sort of away from going into the bank and writing out a credit application. Things are done online. A lot of times spouses are unclear. I don't think my wife's on that account, but what if she gets a phone call? And so that's where I give the advice. Look, if, if there is a collection call and you yourself are, are uncertain as to whether or not it's joint or there's a supplemental card, then what you can do is ask, it's the onus is on the lender to, to, to prove that you're liable. So you can ask the debt collector, you can ask the lender to prove that, uh, you're liable for it to give you some kind of documentary evidence that you've agreed to pay the debt. If they can't produce it, then they should not be collecting against you. And there are provincial debt collection laws and regulatory bodies that inappropriate debt collection can be reported to. So we would certainly give anybody that advice that if they are getting collection calls when they are not legally responsible to pay the debt, you do have recourse to address that situation. Um, and so when it comes to a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, how does it affect a partner or spouse's credit rating? So I file for bankruptcy. Will it affect my husband's credit rating? So there won't be an impact to a spouse on the credit report because we're all individual people. And in terms of credit reporting, there is a the public record side of the reports, which which reports judgments and consumer proposals and bankruptcies and other public record information. Mm -hmm. And then there's the usage side. So any account that an individual has in their name, they have agreed as part of the lending agreement that the lender is allowed to report on the use of credit, what what the credit limit is, how how high uh, the the loan or the amounts have been advanced, and how regular and frequent the payments are being made. So if your spouse has filed a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, if you have joint debt, then yes, that account's going to be reported, and you are now responsible to make those payments. So as long as you keep those current, it's not going to have any impact to your credit rating. Your spouse's filing, just because you're married, is not going to show up on the public record record side. There's no going to be any note to say your husband or your wife <laughs> filed a proposal. And now when you go in to refinance your mortgage, all of a sudden you've got warts all over yourself. No, it, that's not the case. You are individuals. You are treated separately. And it really okay. goes back to what Mike was talking about is what debts are joint and what happens after the filing if there are joint debts. Okay. And Michael, I imagine when bankruptcy and divorce intersect, uh, things get uh, very complicated. Let's talk about what inc impact bankruptcy could have on a divorced couple or a couple who is about to go through a divorce. Uh, sure. So it uh, is often the case that when um, a couple is going through a formal divorce proceeding and there's e either a legal separation agreement or a court order, there, there might be some wording in there about um, who's going to take over joint debts. And I would just caution, and I bring this up first because it's the most common um, sort of element that I discuss with individuals uh, who are going through a separation, is that although you might have an agreement between yourselves that, you know, I'll take over the joint debt and you don't have to worry about that, if the individual who's agreed to do that ultimately enters into a bankruptcy, um, the lender, unless they themselves have made arrangements to change the liability from the, the contractual point of view, are going to go after that that ex-partner or ex-spouse mm -hmm. because the individual who has agreed to pay it is no longer paying it. So just something to keep in mind is that's an agreement between you and your ex and it, the bank is not necessarily uh, you know, uh, obliged to, to follow whatever agreement you've made. So um, then we're talking about sort of what are the complications if uh, you're filing before or after. And primarily for me, when I'm discussing it with people, it breaks down the line uh, along the lines of how are assets treated, uh, how are joint debts treated, 
and we won't get too much into this, I'm sure, but how equalization payments are treated. So general principle is when you file for bankruptcy, your unexempt assets uh, turn over to the trustee or vest in the trustee who then has a responsibility to realize on those. So if you are entering into a bankruptcy before the divorce has finalized, then those assets immediately now vest in the trustee, which is going to impact um, what's available through the divorce proceedings. Whereas if the divorce proceedings have finalized in their entirety um, and assets have been transferred and it's based on the formal agreement or court order and there's nothing fraudulent that's taken place, then typically those those assets wouldn't be available for distribution um, uh, to the to the ex through the divorce proceeding. So it really kind of breaks down to what stage are you in? Uh, and if you file beforehand, you got to think about how the assets are going to be treated in the bankruptcy. And if you're filing afterwards, you're just sort of looking at um, what were the what were the conditions of the uh, agreements and what assets went where. And again, as long as they weren't uh, transferred fraudulently, typically the trustee and the creditors won't be able to go after those. And Jennifer, can a divorced couple file a joint bankruptcy even though they're divorced? Yeah, what we have to look at for joint filings is uh, the percentage of the commonality of the debt. So, um, you know, I think it would pro it's probably easier to do in a proposal as opposed to bankruptcy, just because in a proposal process, individuals maintain title and control of the assets. And when you file a proposal, you're really just putting in a payment plan to discharge the debt, whereas bankruptcy, as Mike was saying, does entail um, a little bit more scrutiny around assets and potentially a financial recovery from assets. So if you have spouses that are in a divorce or, or divorced and, uh, you know, the assets have been separated, it they may not be operating as a household in the sense of um, their assets. So a bankruptcy may not necessarily uh, be appropriate to do as a joint filing, even if, if there's enough of a commonality of debt. So it can be done, but you know, really my advice on that would be it would uh, be prudent just to assess it on a case-by-case -case basis. And you can have spouses that are separated and uh, they get along and uh, they're co-parenting effectively with their children and and maybe you know they're still sort of resolving some of the debt issues and you and you can have spouses that are on very good terms where where they do want to work together with the trustee on a solution and of course that's always a good thing to see because at the end of the day uh discharging the debt and moving on from that issue is also going to help them move on uh, separately in their lives so we certainly encourage folks to ask that question when they're meeting with an lit now, can outstanding alimony or child support payments be discharged in a bankruptcy? Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, do you want to take that one? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, typically speaking, um, there is a section of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, and it details the types of debts that um, will not be released by an order of discharge. And child support and alimony is on that list. So typically speaking, um, if you file bankruptcy and you have those amounts owing, you won't be released from them. Uh, and then there's also a discussion of how um, that, that ex-spouse who is owed the alimony or child support will participate in that bankruptcy as a creditor who will be entitled to um, any dividends that would be uh, available for distribution. And then it gets even further complicated if um, any alimony or child support is, is outstanding for the 12 months prior to the insolvency filing, in which case it gets sort of special treatment and those claims um, get paid out ahead of the other unsecured ordinary creditors. But typically speaking, uh, when you are discharged from the bankruptcy, regardless of what that individual's received from the bankruptcy, you still owe all of your child support and all of your alimony, and you have to pay that. 
And how- now, one thing to keep in mind here is that um, NBC, where I practice, we are, a, uh, because family law uh, is a provincial statute. And so uh, family law provisions are vary by province. And so you have two schemes in Canada. You have one where it's division of property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the others called equalization. So Ontario is an equalization province and BC is a division of property. One thing to be mindful of is I do meet people who say to me, oh, I owe, who lived in Ontario, say an equalization province. I owe my ex uh, $20,000. And what mm-hmm. is, oh, it's alimony. But when you actually drill down, it could actually be an equalization payment where they're making a payment in respect of family assets. Assets. And it's not driven by an ongoing obligation for spousal support, which is um, overseen by SAG, the Spousal Support Guidelines, which are um, a federal uh, table. And then we have pro- a federal slash provincial table uh, for child support guidelines. So when we talk about debt surviving, it is specific to SAG, to spousal support, and it is specific to child support. So that is it is something worth uh, drilling in a little more detail when we meet with people to say, okay, just to clarify, is this an equalization payment? Or is this a spousal support or child support obligation? Because the special treatment, of course, exists for the spousal and child. A lot of people say it should exist for equalization. Uh, That's going to be subject to review at legislative reform. But as it stands now, it is actually a dischargeable debt, no different than the credit card or the unsecured bank loan. And how does support or alimony payment affect surplus income? Is that different provincially or is that governed federally? Um, either one of you. Sorry, again, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like just throwing questions out and you guys, who's going to answer? Well, I could say that uh, we do, we have a prescribed calculation for surplus income payments that all trustees use across the country. They're applicable to bankruptcy, but we also have regards to them when we calculate our proposal payments, uh, when we have individuals filing consumer proposals. They do become um, extraordinary payments, meaning before we look to any payment obligation to a bankruptcy, we will deduct the amount an individual is paying for child and spousal support because it is seen as extraordinary in nature. And that's one that um, an individual would have to pay before they'd e- we'd even contemplate whether or not they have a payment obligation to uh, the bankruptcy. And so we factor that in uh, when we prepare budgets in our proposals and when we prepare um, our bankruptcy paperwork, we will always have regard to what amount an individual is paying monthly with respect to those obligations. Now, Mike, what c- could couples do before a divorce to avoid all the financial problems that can come up down the road? Um, well, I mean, what's common is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, when you're actually going through the divorce, you're sort of trying to set up who's responsible for what debt. So what you could look to do is you could approach a lender and look to sort of set up two different arrangements. Um, and, and ultimately, it's going to depend on, you know, the, the debt itself, um, you know, how much is owing, uh, the the uh, sort of uh, accessibility of the lender and their willingness to work with you on this, but you can essentially look for them to sort of set up two distinct uh, loans uh, or whatever it may be to essentially separate the debt into two distinct debts. So one of you is responsible for for some portion and the other is responsible for the other portion. Uh, the other thing you can do, and I have seen it, although in my experience it is rare, is you can ask the um, co-signer, you can ask the bank to remove one co-signer sort of in order to remove their joint liability. And and again, it's really gonna depend on the the institution, uh, the bank, the lender, whomever it may be, as to whether or not they're, they're open and willing to do that. But if that's established ahead of time, 
then it's easier to sort of figure out when you finally get to divorce who's responsible for what, who's going to handle what, uh, because now sort of the joint liability aspect of it has been has been dealt with beforehand. Uh, other than that, just general, you want to sort of figure out, you know, who, who wants to hold on to what assets and if you're amicable or open to that. It's really going to depend on if the, the couple is kind of going through an adversarial separation or an amicable one. But I would, I would at least as a minimum start there. I'm, I'm sure um, Jennifer has uh, other comments to make on that. Well, the other thing to keep in mind is that as part of a separation process, even when it's done collaboratively, there is a requirement to do very detailed financial statements. And they may you may not uh, think about your expenses in the way that these forms require it. Typically, you have to re report your gross income and write down what your union dues are. And you're looking at this thinking, well, I don't even look at my budget this way. But the calculations are prescribed such that we are required to have regard, the, the formulas require us to have regard to what is the gross income, what are certain uh, deductions that we factor in before we measure a spousal support payment or child support payment, what's the taxable versus, you know, the the taxable versus the, the net amount. And uh, with respect to your expenses, you are going to have to report, for instance, what you pay for dental, mm -hmm. uh, what, what, you know, what are the special extraordinary expenses? And you may just think, well, we send this stuff off to the plan, it gets paid. And, you know, you're going to be looking at your budget in a way and scrutinizing it that is different than what you would typically do when you're looking at your net income and what, what the outflows are. The calculations you're doing with respect to child and spousal support are very different. And so be prepared to have all that financial information ready. Get out your tax returns. You are going to do a financial disclosure with each other. Um, get out all the documents relating to your assets, the life insurance policies. What are the premiums? What are, what are the payout values? All of these things are going to be looked at and considered, even if you're doing it collaboratively. So so if it is something where there's an adversarial piece happening, it is even more important because you do need access to the record. So you would want to have those records available before, for instance, you move out and you have difficulty now getting access to these things. So it sort of depends on the level of friction that's involved, but you're going to get asked questions. Just be prepared um, and do disclosures that are probably ones you've never done before. So just have as much information as you can. Would either of you recommend then, you know, when you're going searching for a family lawyer to also maybe make an appointment with an LIT so that they, you can help, you know, them figure out what is the best option for them financially before they figure out what the best options are for them from a family law perspective or from a divorce perspective? Either... Uh yeah, yeah, I, I I would recommend that uh, just because as we've sort of highlighted um, these two matters, bankruptcy law and family law, when they do collide, it's it's fairly complicated and they, and they impact each other. So if you're going to be speaking to a lawyer about, um, you know, here's how we're looking to have this separation or divorce play out, it would be sensible to have a conversation with an LIT to sort of get a feeling for, you know, how the bankruptcy might influence the divorce or how the divorce might influence the bankruptcy, um, because you'll probably have a, good, have a good idea at that point, <clears throat> kind of what your own individual liabilities are anyways, such that, you know, whatever happens with the divorce um, or separation, you, you're, you may end up, no matter what, dealing with some, you know, debt difficulties or financial difficulties, and you may, at the end of it, one way or the other, need assistance from an LIT to restructure. And so I think it makes sense to have that conversation up front. And, and a trustee is providing, you know, free uh, advice on what all your options are um, and such. You'll have that information so you can make informed decisions. 
And which leads into the last question we have, which is divorce is often on the list as one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. So why do people sometimes experience money problems after a marriage ends, Jennifer? Well, the legal cost can be substantial. And even when things are done uh, collaboratively, there is still a cost to put together a parenting plan, for instance, if children are involved. And to have meetings and draw up a separation agreement, that's also going to be costly. Now, if this is contentious and there's disputes around custody and other financial issues, it's obviously that that's a huge impact to someone's budget and they really have to assess whether they have the funds to to pursue that type of action. Uh, the other thing is that when folks um, separate, they have new financial costs to, to reestablish themselves. Mm-hmm. So they have moving costs. They're, maybe their rent is higher. Um, they also are now living with uh, a, a less amount of income. Like they may receive some spousal and child support, uh, but, you know, may, maybe those payments aren't coming or maybe, you know, they really need to be focused around, look, I've got to be able to survive off of just one income. So that can... Um, certainly have an impact to people um, establishing themselves and, and, and really working through another uh, a new budget. And then the other thing to think about is, is the debt piece. So most a lot of Canadians um, have debt and a lot of families have debt. And so th- until you resolve uh, the issues around your family law matter, whether it's sale of assets to retire debts, you are still going to be carrying um, a level of debt that may be difficult for you to service before you know, you're able to get that paid and resolved with a family law matter. So that's typically what I see in my practice anyway. And Mike, what can people do to avoid money problems after divorce? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of comes back to um, our earlier discussion about, you know, um, how open communication is between you and your now ex-spouse such that um, you're both starting over. So you're both going to be likely mm-hmm. dealing with the same sorts of issues. Although, you know, depending on income levels, one, you know, difficulties might be greater than the others. But a good place to start is sharing advice um, for how that individual is dealing with, you know, suddenly having a, you know, dual in- or d- double income or dual income reduced to a single income. Because unfortunately, when you do see your uh, your income levels drop, it's not like your expenses drop, you know, commensurately such that you're now, you know, back to where you were. It's just the expenses are typically a little bit more against your single income than they were against the dual income or the double income. So sharing advice on what the one person might be doing to handle that might benefit the other. Uh, and then just in general, as we've sort of been stating along the way, which is, a, I think, a key uh, takeaway is that open communication Um, about the tricky elements of separation or divorce. So child support or alimony, um, or for example, joint custody and who's going to have the children and how we're going to, you know, share these expenses. We often see situations where there's even been some sort of informal separation and one person's agreed to pay this and the other person's agreed to pay that. And if there's not open communication, uh, then that will break down fairly quickly. So in general, uh, just sort of work with each other and take advice and uh, be open and communicate um, about the important elements of divorce or separation. And Jennifer, what are a few warning signs of debt and when is the right time to speak to a trustee? Well, I think if you're spending more than 20% of your net income on making debt payments, that is a warning sign that uh, you're going to have cash flow issues. So if there's a change uh, to your income, a change to your expenses, you may find there's difficulty to meeting um, your, your expenses. Uh, the other thing to think about is um, if you just go plug in your the debt levels you have on, we have lots of um, resources on our website, um, and we can have individuals um, 
go in and plug in how much they owe, what are the interest rates. And if you look at what is the time frame for me to actually retire and payment down my debt, can I afford that monthly payment? So that's the other piece is that what is the long-term prospect of me paying off the debt? I mean, other warning signs include things like missed payments, uh, accounts getting sent to collection, um, having to use high-risk lenders, payday loans. Um, then, you know, that's also... A warning sign that you'd want to you'd want to heed and, and pay attention to, and, and certainly um, checking out our website debtsolutions.video.ca, um, you will find other tips um, on there about how to manage debt and pay down debt outside of an insolvency process. If you're not having success with that, or you've been declined a consolidation loan, or there's some other high risk lender that just the process doesn't seem attractive to you, obviously we would encourage you to talk to an LIT and get that advice before you obtain high interest loans, and, and really find out what your options are. Well, thank you both of you for uh, sitting down with me today and talking about this and uh, have a great afternoon. Yeah, you too. You as well. Thank you. Thanks. I want to thank my guests, BDO License Insolvency Trustees, Michael Comrie and Jennifer McCracken for joining me today. And for more financial wellness podcasts, along with videos, debt management resources, tools, and expert advice, visit our website, debtsolutions.bdo.ca. And remember, we are here to help you turn the page on debt.